and then you're waiting to see what's about to happen and then obviously Michael Madsen's crazy ass shows up. But no, it's fantastic. I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. Let's put a smile on that face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me. Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be. Uh, I have a voice. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. And this week, to pair with the release of Free Fire, we are taking a look at Reservoir Dogs because I just felt like the second I saw this trailer, the first thing I thought of was Quentin Tarantino. And this was a great excuse to talk about a Tarantino movie. So we're doing Reservoir Dogs and Masking. And to do that, I have a brand new guest. I have a guest who is a podcaster. Uh, and a film writer, uh, Sean Fallon. So thanks for being here. Of course. No, anytime, mate. I'm uh, glad for having uh, Glad for having me. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, why don't you tell people about your podcast or about your writing at Audiences Everywhere so they know where to find you? Yep. So uh, my podcast uh, is called um, From First to Last. Uh, it's a TV podcast where uh, each episode a guest comes on and they choose a TV show and all we watch in preparation is just the first episode and the last episode uh, and obviously you know you were on it yeah that you Deadwood did, uh, that Deadwood episode yeah. was your best I think I mean yeah <laughs> that was definitely pretty good and and it's 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 good it's uh, I think each guest sort of has the thing of like it, it's sort of a fun idea but then when you actually do watch the first episode paired with the last episode it does open up a lot of conversation. It is quite fascinating to see how a show changes or in some cases doesn't change. And sometimes the change is, oh, this show is really good to, oh, this show What shit. happened? You know? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's quite good as well. Yeah. And then, yeah, Audience Everywhere. Um, I've been writing on Audience Everywhere for about two and a half years. Just, yeah, movie writing. I do a regular podcast of the week feature. And, yeah, it's great. It's just a good opportunity to work with some awesome people and nerd out about geeky stuff that i love like um our editor has really let me um delve into my star wars love and i've written about <laughs> a dozen star wars articles now so yeah i'm very nice. happy nice awesome all right so before we uh take our break and i talk about the psychology about masking why don't you give us a couple movie recommendations yeah no worries so i sort of thought um in terms of sort of a crime story with a lot of like uh, you know, unreliable characters and lies and stuff like that. My first thought was uh, The Usual Suspects. Um, it's an interesting recommendation, this, because I haven't watched that film in about 18 years. Oh, wow. And it used it used to be, like, a big favorite of mine. And I still think, like, it it's comparable to Reservoir Dogs because it was one of those films that um, I watched and then straight afterwards, when I was a teenager, I bought the script. And just sort of like really wanted to just see how the how the sausage was made and like mm. how they they did it. And then my other choice would be uh, the taking of Pelham One Two Three, the original. I was going to say which version? Yeah, good. Yeah, which is a, a fantastic film. And obviously the the connection here, like you got criminals and a heist and all that. And then obviously this is where Tarantino got the um, the trope of using the Mister White, Mister Blue uh, mm-hmm. names and things like that. And also as well, it is. A fantastic movie for being 
very very dark and very very funny which i think is very much a tarantino thing as well nice yeah two good movie recommendations i actually haven't seen uh the taking of pelham one two three it's been one of those that's been on my list to watch forever so Mm. this will give me a really great excuse to uh to actually finally watch it and usual suspects i it's one of those movies that i i saw when i was much younger obviously and like immediately was hooked in and i must have watched that movie 10 times like it's it's definitely a favorite of mine so i'm always behind someone giving that as a recommendation if for some reason you haven't seen the usual suspects yet and are kept in the dark uh, about that movie, then you should definitely check it out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. So we are going to take a break. Uh, I will talk about masking and then we'll bring Sean back to talk about Reservoir Dogs. Hello, I'm Andrew. And I'm Bernadette. And we're the AB Film Review. We're a weekly film review and discussion podcast from Perth, Western Australia. We're a married couple who like to spend our Saturday evenings avoiding reality by discussing and often arguing about the latest films and some classics. And getting closer to divorce. Uh, You can find us on the Podbros Network at podbros.com. Also on Twitter at AB Film Review, Facebook AB Film Review, and our website, abfilmreview.com. That's a lot of ABs. That's it. All right, everybody is time for the psychology section. So today we're talking about masking and specifically masking one's personality. And when you have a movie where for the majority of the characters, you never get their full name. And even the ones you do, they're set in passing. And they're known by, in this case, colors, Mr. White, Mr. Pink, Mr. Orange, Mr. Brown, etc. You're going to have a lot of masking of those personalities because they're trying to fit in with this group as this kind of, in a way, a new person. So I thought like this was a really good idea for the theme. So what is masking? Masking is a process in which a person changes or, of course, masks their natural personality to conform to social pressures, abuse, or harassment. So sometimes it's something you're in a situation where you feel like you have to act a certain way. Um, And sometimes it's more direct where someone says, you need to change um, or I'm going to attack you. Right. In this case, I think it's a social pressure thing. Uh, It's an interesting look at social pressure because usually we think of social pressure as society at large. But this is like kind of a a subgroup um, where you have this group of criminals where they're expected to act a certain way and talk about certain things and not talk about other things. So there's still definitely masking going on here. Some examples of masking are when you have a single kind of dominant temperament or they would call it a humor. Uh, two incongruent temperaments or displaying one of like four main temperaments within the same individual. It can be strongly influenced by environmental factors like having authoritarian parents. If they expect you to act a certain way and punish you if you don't, you are going to mask your personality. Um, Rejection. If you act a certain way and people that you want to either hang out with or date or be around, if they reject you, you're going to want to mask your personality again. And also emotional, physical, or sexual abuse. Of course, you're going to try and change who you are if you're being abused for who you are. A person, it must be made clear, might not even know they're wearing a mask because it's a behavior that can take many forms. Some of this happens kind of below the level of consciousness. Like people who are abused don't set out to be, well, like I was abused because I am this certain way, so I'm going to change it. But in order to survive, you're going to want to change to stop being abused. Now, masking shouldn't be confused with masking behavior, which is to mentally block feelings of suffering as a survival mechanism. So in terms of the history, the term masking was first used to describe the act of concealing disgust uh, by Ekman. And this is a really interesting kind of thing that's happening with this movie is there was a TV show called Lie to Me uh, that also starred Tim Roth, 
who essentially was inspired, that character was inspired by Ekman. Ekman is the person who who discovered uh, what he would call micro expressions, where, you know, there would be these momentary expressions where you could read uh, the major the major emotions, uh, one of those being discussed. And it's also thought of as a learned behavior. So there have been some studies that have shown that this ability begins as early as preschool and you get better at it with age, um, which makes sense because I think in general, people who are younger have a more difficult time concealing those emotions, um, but it's always there. It's something that's kind of natural. In recent studies, masking has evolved and is now defined as concealing one's emotion by portraying another emotion. So it's not just hiding what you're doing, it's putting forward something else. It's usually used to conceal a negative emotion, like sadness, frustration, and anger, with a positive emotion. As far as causes, there's lots of contextual factors, which includes uh, relationships with the person you're talking to. And you can see that in this movie with with Mr. White, uh, played by Harvey Keitel. He is definitely a very different person when he's talking to Mr. Orange, who's bleeding on the ground, than when he's talking to Mr. Pink or Mr. Blonde. So as I was as I was saying, uh, relationships with the conversation partner, a status difference. He's different when he's talking to the boss, when he's talking to Joe. Um, the location, you can see him acting differently when he's, you know, hanging out with Joe in his office rather than he, when he's on this job. And social setting, they're all reasons why an individual could express, suppress, or mask an emotion. Masking essentially is just a facade to behave in a certain way that helps you hide your emotions and represses emotions that aren't approved by those around them. And we'll talk about this later with Sean Fallon when he comes back in this idea that this movie, um, it's very strange because it has these moments of intimacy and things that in a crime movie might be seen as weaknesses, but those scenes only happen one-on-one. And when you see the whole group together, there's a very different, uh, there's a very different interaction that's going on. So these are things that wouldn't be approved by the whole group around them. Um, so he wouldn't be so intimate when he was in the big group, but when he's just talking to Tim Ross' character, to Mr. Orange, you definitely see that. And people in general want to receive acceptance from the public, and masking helps disguise things uh, in real life like anger, jealousy, or rage. Although in this movie, rage is not something uh, that would not gain them acceptance, but I would bet like uh, empathy, showing kindness and care, these are things that our characters would want to hide in the big group. Okay. Um, certain situations come up like personal space, um, masking emotions, um, will change depending on how close a person is to you. You might be less willing to show this kind of weakness if someone is right next to you, whereas they're across the room, there, there would be a different issue. There's also some gender differences. Um, masking these negative emotions do differ for the genders. Women tend to have an easier time hiding negative emotions or in something they dislike that males do. Um, one of the reasons put forward in some of these studies um, is is that there's societal pressure already for women to, quote unquote, act nice that is not there for men. So when men have to hide their emotions, they are not practiced at it. Um, whereas women, in some cases, in order to survive, they have had to mask some negative emotions towards men and they're much better at it. Masking also differs between cultures. Some studies state that certain cultures will tend to moderate their expressions of emotion, while others show a greater amount of positive emotions and expressions. So they have, if you're showing more uh, of these of these emotions and expressions, it's, it's a little bit harder to hide them because they're used to showing them. Now, all people mask their emotions differently. Uh, during childhood, people learn to behave in a certain way when they receive approval from those around them, and that is where the mask comes from. 
the person is not conscious of this role they've adopted and projecting towards people they meet new in their lives. And in some cases, if a person is highly conscious, they may not know even that they're wearing a mask. The idea of wearing a mask takes away energy from us, from our consciousness. And in the long run, it kind of wears us out. Like if you are purposefully wearing a mask, if you're going into a situation going, okay, I can't be myself here. I have to put this on. Then it's going to wear you out. I mean, think about the last time you went on a job interview. You don't go to a job interview and show everything that you are uh, because some things are situationally bound and you want to appear really professional. You want to appear like the best person for the job. So they, you walk out of the room and that person is left thinking like, wow, that is a really great employee I might have. And that's great for 30 minutes, an hour, maybe even two hours. But if you're doing this all day, think about how exhausting that is to just kind of contain yourself and your personality for that long. Um, so that can really wear out your energy. And a person's mask is also noticeable when they are sick or weak and they don't kind of have the power to keep the mask on. Like I said, it does take effort. So if you're physically, if you're out of it in any way, it gets much, much more difficult. And what about the consequences? Actually, very little is known about the effects of masking your negative emotions. And I think, I think we have this idea in general, like without looking at any studies yet, that if you hold this stuff in, if you don't show your anger, I think you've probably heard this before, like, oh, you can't hold this in. It's going to, you know, you got to release the pressure. You're just going to explode with all this negativity. But in the workplace, masking leads to feelings of dissonance, like this idea of insincerity and job satisfaction. So if you're acting like everything is great at work and I really like my job, but you actually hate it, that will wear on you too. So you'll get this emotional and physical exhaustion and actually much more, much more self-reported health problems. Some people have also reported experiencing somatic symptoms. So you end up with, with physical symptoms, like you get back pain, you get this physical exhaustion, you get like random aches and pains that have no explanation because of this masking, and also some physiological and cognitive effects as a consequence. People who have admitted to masking for long periods of time, actually their cognition suffers. They are, they are slower cognitively. So that's a really bad consequence that you can get. All right, so as far as the masked emotions, um, here's the ones that are usually concealed in everyday life. You have anger, anxiety, disgust, embarrassment, fear, frustration, and sadness. And I think you can see these are all negative emotions, right? Things that we're not supposed to show. And the emotions that are usually expressed in place of those concealed emotions are amusement, boredom, which is interesting because that's kind of a negative uh, a negative emotion, but it's it's much more flat. It's much more, it's not as in your face like anger is. And also sometimes gets we replace things with contempt and frustration. And I think it's interesting because embarrassment is something that is about us and we feel bad, whereas contempt is focusing that outward. Um, so it gives us a little more power. So I can see how that would be expressed instead. And also happiness and interest um, are things that we use to mask. So this idea if we're kind of disgusted with a situation, if we feign interest, um, that's something that is more accepted. Uh, and I think it's 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 easy for us to look at these lists and be like, well, I don't do that or I wouldn't want to do that. That's bad. But I think there is a um, there is a reason that we do these things. And the reason we do these things is because it's more socially acceptable. Um, and we want when we survive in this social world. And in the movie we're going to look at in Reservoir Dogs, it's the same thing, but different. Right. Because it's a whole different culture. It's a subculture is really what it is. So there are certain emotions that are much more okay 
happiness isn't even really okay in this subculture, but anger is. So they are much likely, much more likely to mask with this kind of energetic version of these emotions, such as anger and even contempt. All right, so that's it for the psychological section. Uh, when we come back, we will bring back Sean Fallon from the From First to Last podcast to talk about one of his favorites, Reservoir Dogs. Watched the movie, check. Popped the popcorn, check. Sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home, check and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. <laughs> Didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. What's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists, and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new, or possibly old, breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. All right, so we're back. We're back to talk about the movie. So we always kind of talk about our history with this movie. And this is actually – I'm a little bit intimidated. This is a hard episode for me to do because there is absolutely no way I can be unbiased when I talk about Reservoir Dogs because (laughs) this is the movie that, like, hooked me in into independent film. Like, I I remember vividly – Seeing this movie, I know what theater is at. It was a little place called the Town Theater, which is right down the street from my house. And I, I was recommended to go see it by a by a film loving friend. I was just kind of getting into kind of the the world of like film criticism and seeing anything beyond the big blockbusters. And I saw this movie, and like wowed is not a strong enough word. Like I was just so I was so into this movie. I was that yeah. you know stereotypical white teenage boy who couldn't get enough of Tarantino. So so this movie is to be tough to talk about when you talk about flaws because I'm like, but no, it's so great because because of my nostalgia for it. Like people have nostalgia for Star Wars, for Power Rangers, whatever. I have yeah. nostalgia for Reservoir Dogs. So saw it in the theater on its release. You know, bought it uh, every chance I got. Every time they updated the technology, I would I would rebuy it because I just think it's that good. And yes, there are problems with it, which we'll we'll talk about. I'm sure. But this is a movie I just. I absolutely love. What about you? What's your history with with Reservoir Dogs and with Tarantino in general? Well, I am a little bit younger than you, so um, most people film... are. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so I think when this movie came out, I was about um, eight years old. I my sort of experience with this film is I remember when it came out. I, I think um, it must have been the Daily Mail or something like some paper in England really sank its teeth into it. Oh, I'm sure. I was trying to make it into some sort of like cultural downfall because of the uh the ear scene so it was like it was deemed a video nasty and all this shit um so i remember it sort of just being around and, and my mum and dad and my older cause my brother's like five years older than me so we got to see all this stuff before me um i remember them watching it my sort of intro to tarantino was uh probably pulp fiction Okay. I remember vividly like my mum and dad and my brother watching it downstairs and I was supposed to be asleep upstairs and I was just awake because I could hear them laughing and I could hear music and stuff like that. And then um, after Pulp Fiction, we went on holiday to Spain or Greece 
And my mum, dad and brother just spoke in Pulp Fiction quotes the entire time, <laughs> which was totally I was I was like, you know, 10 years old. So I was trying to like get in on the jokes and trying to like copy what they were doing. And then I think maybe when we got back like a year, like six months later, my mum sat me down and watched it because I was like completely left out of the loop with the family. <laughs> um, and yeah, and I mean, it was I, there's definitely like a period like uh, you got Reservoir Dogs and then Pulp Fiction and then England um, uh, train spotting. So I think that's like 92, 94, 96. And they were very formative for me. Sure. Um, just as my like teenage years were starting, this idea that you could make movies that didn't have, you know, superheroes or explosions and shit like that. And were just like, just kind of horrible people doing horrible things, but done in such a way that you sympathize with the ones you sympathize and so on and so on. Right. And, and, I, I mean, I think if this reservoir, my version of Reservoir Dogs, I think would probably be Train Spotting. Sure, like that was the first time I saw a film, like an independent film, where I was just like, I, I, I this has completely opened a door. Like, right, cinema is very different for me now. I had this idea of what movies were, and then it's like, oh no, and then there's Train Spotting, Pulp Fiction, and Reservoir Dogs. Like, oh shit, no, that's a right. whole other language. <laughs> I don't know nothing about this. This is this right. is like looking at a map and being like, wait what's this country and just discovering something right. completely different. Like, yeah. There's like so, a whole yeah. nother area to unfold on that map for sure. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. I think that is why, um, whether you love him or hate him. And it seems like those are the only two, uh, reactions <laughs> that people have to Tarantino. I think the reason that he was able to kind of gain this foothold really quickly, like in the space of two movies from Reservoir Dogs to Pulp Fiction, yeah. then he was, you know, he could kind of write his own check. And I think it was because and yes, he does borrow from so many different places, but he borrows from places yeah. that most people don't recognize. So we see him as very original and very different and a unique voice. Yeah. And I think that's what really led to him becoming the kind of superstar in independent in, in independent film that he has become is because yeah. this felt so different and it felt like a shock to the system and out of left field and whatever terms you want to use, it was definitely something that we as as a culture hadn't seen before in this form oh no definitely and and like watching it last night um uh i, I did make a note like the, the first seven minutes like that cafe scene up <sighs> until when they're walking that is just i think the thing that the reason that like tarantino ends up being the big figure that he is and i adore him i think he's incredible i i i cannot fault him in any way i think he's just bona fide I think he just makes masterpieces and that's just all he can do. That's the only speed he has. Um, and I think those first seven minutes are very much like this kid just like kicking open the door and just being like, like just so much confidence because yes, I, I couldn't imagine see, I, watching this seven minutes now, now that I've seen a lot of these tropes just be like imitated, parodied and just like done to death by lesser uh, talent. But Imagine the first time you saw that, you were just like, what the fuck is this? Like, yeah. it's what kind of what movie opens with this long monologue about Madonna and then that whole thing about <laughs> tips and then yep. the way they're talking, the way they're dressed, like, and these actors interacting. You're like, this is all, it, obviously, it's criminals sat around a table talking, but it's, it's brand new. It's, it's, it's just something completely new and so confident. 
Yes. Just to sort of say, I'm, I'm this so, is what we're going to start with. I'm so glad you brought that up because in terms of direction, which we'll go into now, of course, directed and written by Tarantino, as mm. I think all of his movies are. That was the first thing I noticed as I'm rewatching this for probably the 50th time or whatever. <laughs> that scene at the at the diner table as the camera just slowly pans around and shows everybody, shows their reactions at the right time, shows the speaker at the right time. And it's so confident, does not feel like a director who has never really done this before. Because it's like his first film. Like he hasn't. Yeah. He has at this point. He probably has zero clue what he's doing. He's just doing yeah. what feels right. And as as a filmmaker, as far as someone who is just natively good at this, and his yeah. instincts are so right on. Like I think culturally, he's got he has some work to do that he still hasn't mm-hmm. done. But when you talk about behind the camera and his and his scripts. Like there is a rawness and a reality is the wrong word, but you feel like in this world that he's created in this kind of Tarantino verse, this feels real and this feels like it's actually happening. I love that he had the balls, the guts to have that first seven minutes before the before the opening credits. We're not going to we're not going to say these people's names. We're not going to introduce them. We're not going to tell you what they're doing. We're just going to tell this story and you're going to be hooked. And I think. And it's it's interesting that he chose his own character as the one who opens this movie and and tells this story. But honestly, I think Tarantino, like like other directors, like uh, like Shyamalan, is in all of his own movies. But I, mm. and I, but I think this is probably his best performance out of any of the movies that he's made an appearance in. Like in Pulp yeah. Fiction, not so great. Like it's just like okay, let's yeah. just get through this and let's get back to Sam Jackson. But in this, yeah. like he really you you could tell he knows this speech backwards and forward he knows it so well he just couldn't wait to say it and it really works but there's no drop off after that be after that happens and you have you know buscemi's take on tips and why some people get tips and some people don't that became probably to me i think the most quoted line of dialogue of that (laughs) year like everyone who saw that movie was quoting it and also like you mentioned that opening credits as they're all walking out like it's just there's no other word for it it's just cool like it just yeah. it just oozes cool in that moment. Like you have, you know, the the cool talking in the beginning, but just that that like pause as they're all walking and they've all got the same kind of suit. You just like know these guys are badasses and criminals before anything <laughs> has happened. Yeah. And it's 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 not it's not fake cool. It's not like um what they think cool is. It's sort of well, I mean, obviously from that the whole thing of like the black suits with the skinny black ties. Like that became very, very cool. Yes. Like, and, and it was obviously a very easy Halloween costume and stuff like that. I was just and thinking that just... so many of my friends did that for their Halloween costume yeah. that year. Like, <laughs> mm. that's fantastic. And it was just the coolest thing. And you see it so much in like in in movies around this period of like trying to do that thing of like because there's a sort of alchemy to Tarantino in the sense of like. He has, like you say, that sort of natural talent for being behind the camera, but also, you know, and he's writing his own scripts and he's like, that's perfect as well. But then also the music he knows, he knows the music, he, he yep. casts well and all that. Yeah. There is that wonderful thing of like, there's not like, I think it, to use like Shyamalan as the example, he sort of when he had his huge drop off, it was it, everything. You know, it all crumbled and fell apart. Because the the pieces were like, he he became quite self indulgent and quite right. cocky, mm-hmm. but it didn't really work. Whereas Tarantino started at that point of like, 
you, you can imagine he's just come in and be like, right, okay, day one, let's make a masterpiece and just done it. Right. You know what I mean? It's just there's been that's what he's been telling everyone. It hasn't been a thing of like, oh yeah, no, I'm just making this little this little indie movie and we'll see what happens. He's like, no, this movie's gonna be a classic from day one and it's right. going to launch me into the stratosphere. Let's just do that now. Yeah, and it also it, it says a lot about a director when they're really when they do really well in their first film, it's always interesting to see what they do next. And I think, you know, Tarantino for all of for some of the faults he has, like he really he capitalized on Reservoir yeah. Dogs and went to Pulp Fiction, which is, you know, uh if you talk to your friends, it's on a lot of like everyone's like top you know, 20 of all time, like every movie yeah. ever made, like that goes to the list. And then you look at, uh, we brought up Shyamalan before you look at him, he did the sixth sense, which was widely hailed as, you know, yeah. a piece of genius fiction. And people were <clears throat> talking about him being the next Spielberg or him being the next Hitchcock, mm-hmm. whatever you want to choose. And then, you know, he makes another really good movie in an unbreakable, but it's definitely much, a much smaller and more contained story whereas this first movie Mm. was like this very it's you know paranormal in nature there's a lot going on and then like as he you know has some misses he really like you could see him like really trying to trying to make something to get him back in the light again and i feel like yeah tarantino like sometimes i feel like he's too confident for his own good but (laughs) he he does this thing where he's like i'm gonna make the movie i want to make because Fuck you! I made Pulp Fiction, and I'm basically me and Harvey built Miramax, so yeah. I get to do whatever I damn well please. Like no other director gets to make Kill Bill. Like that would never no. happen. Like that, it's such a, especially make two movies out of it. No, no way. And I'm glad. I'm glad you brought up the music because that's actually one of my favorite directorial choices in this film. Is that the music is all native to the film. And that it's it's on a radio station. And I love that. And I love that he plays with that. And we'll talk about it more later. But you mentioned that ear scene. And I love that that is set to a certain piece of music. And it's literally on the radio in the room. And I just thought like, wow, what a cool choice. And I wish more. I don't think that works in every film. But I wish Mm -hmm. more films did that where the music was explained. It wasn't just in the background for no reason as as kind of an ad hoc score. But instead, like, look, no, this is this is the music. We have a DJ. We have these songs that no one has heard in 30 or 40 years. Like, I just think that's a really, really nice touch. And the other thing I like is that we talked about how he's really confident behind the camera, but he's not in this movie, at least when it comes to his quote unquote camera tricks, he's not overly indulgent. It's not like every scene he takes that he takes, he's got to use these tricks. It's not there, but he, he holds himself back. And I think in particular, the scenes in the warehouse are really well blocked. Like it actually feels a little bit like a stage play. Like it feels like he's had experience, you know, working in theater because everyone is spaced perfectly. They, they interact in the right ways. And like when they come together, there is this kind of almost explosion, these two forces kind of launching themselves at each other. But there's two like iconic shots in this movie to me one is the the shot from the the trunk of the car which he will reuse in Mm. many of his films but it's just such a cool it's such a cool looking shot because at that point it keeps this mystery of like i don't know what's in there what are we looking at and then it's slowly revealed and the other shot that i always think of when i think of this movie is when mr blonde makes his first appearance in the warehouse and at mm. first no one sees him and then the the camera just slowly zooms out until we see his boot and then we realize someone important is in the room. And it's just a cool yeah. way for the director to have this actor make his grand entrance. And I'll always like hold on to that. Yeah, no, fantastic. And and definitely I have that in my notes, like about the stage play. There are certain scenes where 
I think the, it, it jumped out at me. There's a scene where I think it's actually just before Blonde shows up and like Mr. White and Mr. Pink are talking. And the way that Harvey Keitel moves around the room and the way he talks, you think I, I was like, oh, yeah, he could be he could be doing Shakespeare or something here because the, the way it's sort of the way it's blocked, the way it's shot. I was like, yeah, I I would not be hugely shocked if I Googled this and found out that, you know, all over America, colleges are putting on their own version of Reservoir Dogs. You know, it'd be very easy to quickly adapt into something that runs for an hour or so and you just have all the warehouse scenes and you just work it out from there. And it's it's incredible to um, sometimes the camera does things and then sometimes it's just like, no, just step back let these actors do what they're doing and then we'll bring some bring some source into it later but like yeah that that sequence there is perfect as it just like very slowly pans out and then you're waiting to see what's about to happen and then obviously michael madsen's crazy ass shows up but no it's fantastic (laughs) yeah i mean i think i think you're right i think it really does take it this is the perfect script for an independent film because you can just see like Mm. this is a movie that it doesn't look cheap but it looks like it could be made on the cheap because there's not that many sets like you have the little flashback bits but it's like okay it's an office and it's uh um it's just you know outside the the cop talking to his uh talking to the other cop trying to get ready for this commode story like they're very simple simple sets but they all really work. The thing I was impressed with, I think, is that, you know, uh, that that stuff didn't ring as false because it's so different from uh, the scenes in the warehouse. But that stuff all, yeah. I mean, just really, really works. Um, but what about the acting? So who stands out to you in this movie? Is there anyone that kind of shines brighter? I mean, we've got Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi. Like, this is this is really a great, this is like the hall of fame, like independent mm. film cast of white guys. Like if you want the best <laughs> white guys available, just look at this cast. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. I am. Um, Harvey Keitel jumped out at me this time. Um, Cause usually I think when I'd watched it in the past, I thought that like Tim Roth, like stole the show. Mm-hmm. And I still think he is, he is absolutely incredible. And, and he's an actor who I, I think he's done some absolutely incredible stuff in his day, and he's yes. done some he's done some shite as well, but he's done <laughs> sure. some absolutely incredible stuff. <laughs> but um, yeah, Kaitel, he just because I guess a lot of what I want to say about this, we'll, I'll have to save it for when we talk about the theme. But like, I think it, it's such an interesting role, and I don't know, it's I, I was just completely into it. I, I I didn't feel as though it was a character. I was just sort of like. I believed him like there was it was he was probably of all the characters the least not so not so much quirky but like where you obviously like so Mr. Blonde you are sort of like right he's just a psychopath that's his thing and then like Mr. Pink's gonna be the big twitchy one <laughs> and obviously Tim Roth's just shot in the stomach so he's got to just do with all that but then Mr. White doesn't have like a like a type you know what I mean I guess he's just sort of like he's like a fatherly character or just like a I don't know. It's, it's such an interesting thing because even though if you try and think to yourself, okay, yeah, he's the, he's like the dad of the group. Mm-hmm. A lot of his dialogue, he is still one of the boys. Yep. So yeah, there was. It's, I don't know, just that sort of. He just felt like like a grizzled career criminal, mm-hmm. and then that was it, and that was his whole thing, and it just worked so well. I was just really impressed by him this time. Yeah, I really think um, Harvey Keitel's character, uh, Mr. White. I think he's. 
he's easily the most complete character in the film. Yeah. Because, I mean, granted, we get just more time with him because we get all the scenes between him and Tim Roth. But you get a a real picture of both who he is as a criminal and who he is Mm. as a human being. Um, and there's yeah. a, there's a lot there. Whereas, like you said, Tim Roth, who's also great and was one of those actors that after I saw this, I just wanted to see everything he was in. Um, yeah. But he's he's given a challenge here because for most of the movie, he's, you know, half unconscious and bleeding on the floor and like, you know, gritting yeah. his teeth through his lines and really struggling to spit it out. And I think Michael Madsen, I think, has the most fun. I think he's, you yeah. can tell as an actor, like he's really enjoying himself. And despite the fact that he's a complete psycho in this movie, he is also like probably the most effortlessly cool character in this movie. Yeah. Like in a weird way, you you don't like him, but you like having him on screen. Like I think yeah. I think every time he shows up again, you get really excited. Just like, oh, business is about to pick up here. Like things are about yeah. to get really interesting. But for me, I, my favorite character in this film was always Mr. Pink. I think Steve Buscemi, oh, yeah. for whatever reason, like when I first saw this, like really stood out to me. And I just saw him and I knew like I want to see more of that guy. And he's oh, ended okay, up yeah. having like a really interesting, really cool career, like did a little bit of directing. If people haven't seen Living in Oblivion, that was his uh his first uh directorial effort and it's tremendous. Okay. It's fantastic. Uh and of course, you know, moved on to be in things like Fargo. He became this like for a character actor, kind of a star. Like he, I think he's the one who probably did the best uh, out of this film. I think the only the only weak link in this film really is Chris Penn uh, as Nice Guy Eddie. Yeah. Like he's from my first watch. He's always been such a struggle for me. Um, and this was, I think, before I'd ever seen Footloose, so I didn't have any baggage from him being in anything else. But it just he didn't ring quite true and he didn't seem to have a grasp of Tarantino's language. And I think it's, that's the thing that makes a great Tarantino movie is getting actors that really get it. There's some actors of his that just get it right away. Like, like Sam Jackson is perfect for, for Tarantino movies. Like he just, he really, really gets it and he latches onto it and there's like a rhythm to it. And Chris Penn felt like he was performing and it just didn't work for me. Yeah, no, I can I can definitely agree with that. There are there are writers who are like that. I um I recently was was talking to someone about um uh, Josh Josh Whedon, and he's definitely one of those writers who he's so quite he's, he's so he has such a, like affected dialogue that if you 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 do see actors who can't do it like there's right. I mean it's it's like it's like anything it's like Shakespeare. You I was just thinking that that was the first thing. The is, thing. Yep, just can't yeah. grasp that language and it doesn't it sounds foreign in their mouths. Yeah, like when when Chris Penn's not is like doing very small stuff, it's fine. Right. But when like when he's in the office talking to Mister Blonde and he's got to do that quite not so much a monologue, but he's talking a lot. Right. And even though like I know from like behind the scenes stuff, like Lawrence Tierney, like uh, Joe, was a nightmare to work with, like because he kept forgetting his lines and he's quite <laughs> a violent character in real life. Right. I feel like even he he his stuff works. And and in that sequence, when you've got like obviously Mr. Blonde, effortlessly cool, and Michael Madsen can do Tarantino lines, he's, oh, yeah. he's totally cool with it. Yep. And then Lance Tierney's doing his little thing, and a nice guy Eddie just doesn't work. Like he he there's a there's a great scene where like you know when he, they're first there and Lance Tierney gives um gives Mr. Blonde the drink and he sort of says oh thanks for the care packages and all that, and that's a cool little sequence. And then when nice guy Eddie comes in, and he start like scuffling and this all stuff i was like yeah i need this scene to end this is this is bollocks just get to the right 
get to the meat of it. And I don't think I quite realized what that was. And I think you've hit the nail on the head that it is Chris Penn. Like he can't, he, he's not as magnetic as the other people in the film. Right. So you're just sort of like, yeah, keep, because even like, I mean, Tarantino can't act his way out of a paper bag, but even <laughs> he, because even actually what you were saying before about opening with the, with the Madonna monologue, originally Tarantino had said he, he wanted to play Mr. Pink. And oh God, when, what a nightmare. When, Oh, yeah. God. And when Buscemi came in to, to audition, Tantino was like, well, I'll give you a heads up. I really want this role. So you need to absolutely kill this audition to get it. Right. And obviously he did. So Tarantino had actually originally given the Madonna monologue to Mr. Pink and then swapped their dialogue so he could be Mr. Brown and open the film doing that monologue. That's how that's how much he wanted it. Well, I and, think yeah, also Tarantino, I think also Tarantino is just so much better this this is definitely an insult, but he's so much better when he's not interacting with people. Like when yeah. he's giving a speech, he's great. But when he has to yeah. have a dialogue, like it's like, oh, this you could just sometimes when you have two actors and they're they're in a scene together and having a dialogue, if one actor is like way above the other actor, like it reads yeah. on the screen. You can tell like you were just being blown away. Like if he had a scene yeah. with Steve Buscemi, like he, if he was playing Mr. White in that scene with Buscemi, like that would not work at all. Like he's so much better. Like give the man a monologue because he loves to hear yeah. himself talk and especially when it's his own words. So let him go. Yeah, that's it. I mean, well, you can see that in um, like Pulp Fiction when he's like the that whole middle section. Oof. There's a there's a point where he's doing like a monologue to Samuel Jackson, and and it's it's quite painful. Like it's very very stilted. Um, and again, that was another one. He wanted to play the character that Eric Stoltz played in right. uh, uh, Lance or whatever. And then again, a very good near miss because it, it just wouldn't have worked. Yep. Yeah. Totally agree. Uh, I'm trying to think if we've missed anybody uh, when it comes to the acting. I think, I think, like you said, like there, it takes a special kind of actor to play Mr. Blonde here. Like I think it's it would be really easy for him to be completely reviled by the audience. But I think that the way that they either Madsen chooses to play it or the way it's written, where he's constantly just like hanging back in the room and letting things come to him, I think really helps because I think if he's uber aggressive, like, and I think it's a very smart choice to not show what happens in the, during the heist. Like you, you see the after, you see the after effects, see the aftermath, but you never see him going nuts in the store. Because I think if we do, we see him like shooting innocent people, And then it becomes like, I can't, I don't really want to be in the room with this guy, but because we don't know what happened and it's like everyone's word against everyone else. I think that really helps his character too. Yeah, no, very much so. And, um, like it's the, the whole sequence where they've got the cop tied up and, and like Mr. White, Mr. Pink beating the shit out of him, but then sat on a hearse in the back. You've just got Mr. Blonde just above everyone else, just watching and just not doing anything. Mm-hmm. And it's great. Like it's, it is like, um, uh, I mean, I think Tarantino has a really good skill for writing villains. Like yes. I think, um, like further down the line, once you get into like, he's more of his, like his genre stuff, obviously Hans Lander, uh, Christoph Waltz in Inglorious Bastards. Might be his best is, written character period. Yeah. yeah. And that, and that guy, that is like a pure villain. Yeah. And, I mean, the the best part of like the Hans Lander thing is that opening sequence where there's no aggression at all. You know, it's it's yeah. the it's the threat, the unspoken threat, and that's and that's sort of Mr. Blonde. You know that he's out of his mind, but like you say, because you haven't seen it happen, you're waiting for something to happen. You're waiting for what's going to happen next. Like, well, I know this guy is a psychopath, 
what's he going to do? Why hasn't he done anything? Please do something. Right. <laughs> Put me out of my misery. misery. I'm dying. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, actually a great transition to talk about the writing. You mentioned, you know, that he's so good at writing villains. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but you, have you ever watched a movie like so many times and then you notice something small and you feel so stupid for not noticing it before. And this is what happened to me as I was watching Reservoir Dogs. There's a scene in the beginning in the diner um, where Harvey Keitel has taken Joe's notebook away from him. And he's really he's really annoyed, uh, annoyed at him for this. And oh, give me that fucking thing. Now, what the hell do you think you're doing? You're my book. I'm sick of fucking hearing it, Joe. I'll give it back to you when we leave. What do you mean when we leave? Give me it back now. For the past 15 minutes now, you've been droning on about names. Toby. 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 Toby Wong. Toby Wong. Toby Wong. Toby Chung. Fucking Charlie Chan. We've got Madonna's big dick coming out of my left ear. And Toby the Jet, I don't know what, coming out of my right. Give me that book. Are you going to put it away? I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want with it. Well, then I'm afraid I'm going to have to keep it. Hey, Joe, want me to shoot this guy? Shit. <laughs> you shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize. <laughs> All right. I'll take care of the check. You guys can get the tip. Should be about a buck a piece. And you, when I come back, I want my book. Sorry, it's my book now. Hey, I changed my mind. Shoot this piece of shit, will you? <laughs> <laughs> and then that's pretty much exactly what happens at the end of the film. Like he completely telegraphs what is going to happen in the shootout in in the warehouse in the first five minutes of the movie. And I never yeah. really put it together before. And I saw it this time. And I, of course, I'm like kind of thinking more uh, more critically and thinking about what's coming next. And I was just like, oh, my God. Holy shit. Yeah. Like the first five minutes of the movie, he has told you that this character is going to shoot this character. I just thought that was such a cool little touch in the screenplay. Yeah, no, and it's it's great. Like, um, I'm trying to think. Well, I mean, the, my only one of those I can think of is uh, like watching a film a million times and then not seeing it was um, Shaun of the Dead. Like I watched that film a hundred times when it first came out. And then I think I put the director's commentary on and we're like, oh, yeah. So when they're planning out the pub crawl at the start, they're actually right. showing you the plot, the plot of the entire yeah. film. <laughs> And the problem is, see, I wish I'd never worked that out because once I learned that, every time I watched an Edgar Wright Simon Pegg film, now you're looking I was for waiting. It. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for that thing. So, like, when I watched like The World's End and it opened on the pub crawl, I was like, oh yeah, okay, so this is going to happen, this is going to happen, you know. And I'd learned the language, but um, yeah, no, it's great, like you say, like that sort of thing. Like, well, it's actually it's it's Lawrence. Uh, Joe says to him, um, shoot this piece of shit, but it's Joe who shoots him in the end. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's always that, that ending scene is really hard to make out who shoots who. There's a lot going on. (laughs) I'm, I'm still not sure it totally makes sense with physics (laughs) that everyone gets in that moment, but you know, Mr. Pink survives and that's all that matters because he's my favorite (laughs) character. So, you know, it's good enough for me. Um, I think the thing that's most surprising to me about this script is that when you look at this film, you know, from a distance, this feels like a very masculine movie. Like this feels like very mm. tough and very raw and very violent. And it is all those things. But there is that scene in the in the back of the car as Mr. Orange is like bleeding out 
Uh, and, and, you know, Mr. White is comforting him and singing to him and trying to make things okay. Mm -hmm. And then later when they get to the, when they get to the warehouse, like one of the characters, Mr. Orange literally says, hold me. Like he needs that comfort. It's this weird, like intimacy that you would never expect out of a movie like that. But it's still, as the movie goes, you realize how much it fits those characters. And it makes you yeah. wonder, like, is Mr. Orange really needing that comfort? Or is he trying to play this part because he is an undercover cop? But it teaches us, I think, more about Mr. White than anyone else, that he does give a shit, that he does care, that, like, it's not just like, and this person is a total and complete stranger, and they've only known each other for, like, a couple weeks max, but yeah. he really cares about him. And I love that that is in there. What are we waiting for? I'm fucking scared, man. Can you hold me? Yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think the interesting thing as well is, um, in terms of the writing, like a, a story like this, like, you know, undercover cop gets in too deep. You know, there's like a like a Donnie Brasco type thing where you have like a sort of father figure who he latches onto and mm-hmm. so on. But the interesting thing is, Tarantino never really shows Mr. White and Mr. Orange becoming friends. You know, I mean, there's like one scene where they have a little. They're like he's talking through the heist, but it's not like it's sort of that opening is the bit where you realize, okay, these two have you know, join this whole criminal enterprise, these two have bonded and there's something going on, but there's never a, there's never a sequence of scenes where it shows them becoming friendly or becoming friends. Like even right. when you've got when you've got like orange and pink and nice guy Eddie and Mr. White in the car and they're driving around, it's Mr. Orange and Mr. Pink who are sort of joking around in the back. It's not Mr. Yeah. White. And it's it's amazing that just in that opening thing with this, with that whole hand holding, the, the singing, and then yeah, when he carries him in and he he reassures him, and then they hold each other and all that. That's enough. Right. Like you don't you don't need to see how they get to that point. You can see that these two care about each other, and that's enough. You don't need the you don't need some sort of bit where they're holding hands in the park or you know they right. bond over some sort of shared thing. It's like no, you can see this is the journey. This is where this story's going to end, and you don't need to know that they that they well probably not love each other, but whatever. But like, you know, you can see it here. Yeah. Which again is just very good economic, economic writing. I yeah, guess, absolutely. Expression. And there's also a lot of little touches uh, in this movie that I really like that really tells us about these characters. They're, I think at this point, it's like Mr. White, Mr. Pink and Mr. Blonde are all talking about what happened uh, and how mm. one of them had to shoot their way through and kill some cops. And Mr. Pink responds, <laughs> no real people. Like (laughs) he wants to make sure no civilians were killed. So he actually like he has a heart. He's not totally cold blooded, but it's interesting. Like he sees he sees cops as like this this evil that has gotten in the way. And that tells you everything you need to know about Mr. Pink, that he really is, you know, one of those characters that, you know, the the ends justify the means. Like it's just got to be like, okay, that had to be done. Good that no, quote unquote, real people are killed. And I I like that that little touch. And there's also this. The script does a really smart thing in right before Mr. Orange like kind of revives and shoots uh, shoots Mr. Blonde. I think yeah. you've completely forgotten about him. He has become yeah, yeah. a piece of the set. It's a little like uh, it's a little like that horror movie Saw where, you know, yeah. spoilers for Saw, I guess, if you haven't seen that. But you have a dead body in the room that comes alive at the very end of the film. 
and you could you see it as a prop you just see it as this dead body and mr orange has become that because for the like the last 20 minutes of the movie he slipped into unconsciousness and then all of a sudden yeah. like leaps up and you know you know puts four rounds into mr blonde and it's a genuinely shocking moment and that's just and that's just a really well written script yeah fantastic and actually saying that um in terms of movie recommendations i'd actually put saw as uh being quite similar to this in that sense of like you know a couple of people in one room yep. were jumping outside to sort of see where they come from and all that and then yeah yeah <laughs> okay, nice cool. yeah i think um, go ahead well yeah no i think i think you're totally right about the um the because i even having seen this film you know a dozen times when i was watching it and he's like pouring the petrol over the uh carp i was like I can't remember what's going to happen here. Right. And there was, yeah, there wasn't a point where I thought, well, Mr. Orange is there and he's got a gun. I was like, oh, does someone come back in? It's like, right. I know he doesn't set fire to the car. And then, you know, yep. and then it's all gunshots. And you're like, oh, yeah, of course. Right. Orange has been there the entire time. Yeah, absolutely. I think, okay, so there's one major fault in this screenplay and we got to talk about it. And it's, yeah, it's Quentin Tarantino because you know, reportedly, according to him, he grew up around a lot of black people, really yeah. loves throwing around the N-word. Uh, yeah. And it's pretty insulting. Like, there are two or three sequences in this film. Like, you mentioned one of them when uh, Eddie and Mr. Blonde and Eddie's dad are in the room, Joe are in the room. He starts talking about, you know, black guy's sperm being pumped up his ass, so he's talking like yeah. one of them. And then it's, Buscemi has a line, like, you guys are acting like N-words you know, always yeah. fighting over the money and blah, blah, blah. And it's really ugly. And it's really – in a movie that's about criminals, like I get – part of me gets like you're trying to make – you're trying to remind the audience these are bad guys. But like that yeah. just seems done just for shock value. And for me, like this movie for me – and granted, totally biased. This movie is like almost – Almost an A-plus movie and then these little things happen and he's – because he's been so successful, no one puts a stop to it. So then you get yeah. you get Tarantino doing Django Unchained. So it's like, you know, there are <laughs> – and if you – and if you talk to black people who like cinema and like Tarantino movies, there's always this moment of, yeah, but – and I can't blame mm. people who are turned off by this because – it's one thing to use words, powerful charge words like that for a purpose, but this just doesn't feel like it's for a purpose. It just kind of flies out of these white characters' mouths and seems, frankly, out of character. Yeah, no, like very much so. And I think, I don't know, I, I, I don't know if like Tarantino's trying to like course correct in a Tarantino sort of way. And like, obviously, he did a movie where you know, where Nazis were brutalized and then he did them in Django Unchained. And I do love Django Unchained, um, where it was obviously just like that sort of fantasy of what happens if the slave rises up and just kills everyone. And then like Hateful Eight has a lot of stuff about um, obviously like post-Civil War and Samuel sure. Jackson, like getting revenge and stuff like that. So I don't know if sort of he's he's sort of taken it to heart and he's like, oh, I should. I, need, I definitely need to show people I'm not this like you know, fiery racist, but he's doing it in a very Tarantino-y way. Right. You know, he's continuing to make these like intensely violent movies and and continuing to 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 drop the N-word like it's not a thing. And and just sort of that's how he's trying to course correct. I don't know. I might be I might be just trying to put words in his mouth. But yeah, <laughs> I, I I was the same same as you. Like that scene with nice guy Eddie I hated it. Like that was like a really that was the one scene in the film I was like, oh, I I could totally have done without this. Yeah. And then yeah, it is interesting like that Steve Buscemi one or Mr. Pink or whatever. Like 
it, it doesn't have to be that word. It doesn't have to be you're fighting like a couple of, you know, it could be assholes and that right. would have had the same effect. There's no reason for it. It's not like, I don't know. I don't know what would have made it make sense. Well, I think it's like, a, it's especially upsetting yeah. because this is also a movie without any black characters, except for like the other yeah. the other cop, the other and he cop, is he's yeah. completely separate from this storyline. So you don't have it's it's got like you don't have these moments of like you having to actually interact with black people. So it's just these white yeah. people siloed off, all of a sudden dropping n bombs, and it's like what. Yeah. How do and I think it works a little better in movies like Django and in movies like uh, Hateful Eight because of the the time period. But when yeah. you're making this modern, like this doesn't really work, and it becomes kind of upsetting. But but other than yeah. that, I feel like the screenplay is fantastic. Like I think it all works mm. really well. It's just these little things that are like, ooh, I don't. I don't really like hearing that, Quentin. That maybe not, maybe it was yeah. not the best choice, and it feels like the only thing done in the movie that's simply for shock value. Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure if you. I mean, these these things appear and they really annoy me. It's uh, Jason Reitman does the uh, live script readings, so he'll do like um, uh, he did Glen Gary Glen Ross with an entirely female cast, mm-hmm. and he did Reservoir Dogs with uh, an entire. It was a black cast, hmm. like it was just all black actors, and um, apparently, like, people who watched it and sort of like talk, uh, and talked about it critically, they they said like it it worked really well. Like it was this interesting idea of like, it changed your idea of the first film because it made you see like these white dudes were sort of, there was a lot of posturing and there was a lot of like, try it's, it, I can't remember the exact words, but it was sort of a thing of like, cause when they have that conversation in the car and they're talking about, uh, Pam Greer mm-hmm. and they're talking about, um, I can't remember the name of the, the detective now and all that. And I don't know, it's this interesting conversation and there's a lot of like weird stuff where it sounds like a white guy trying to be a black, like trying to right. talk like, which is very, I think, a criticism that Tarantino gets quite a lot, that he is like a white dude who's trying his best to sort of have that black voice. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, it does not 100% strike rate. You know, it is, it is hit and miss. And apparently, yeah, it was very interesting, like, to watch this film that had been, like, a predominantly, like, white crime film, but done with a full, like, African-American cast. And apparently it was brilliant. Yeah, I would Um, love to see that, actually. That sounds pretty fantastic. All right, so let's move to uh, the production value. So we kind of talked to some about this already, about how this movie is definitely made on the cheap. This is not, like, a $100 million budget uh, by any stretch. But were there any sequences that rang false to you as far as the production value, or did it? Did it all work? It all worked. I mean, I was even actually I um, when it cuts to Mr. Pink running through the streets being chased by the cops. I was like, oh, shit, they, they did have some money then. They did have the ability right. to do some things like they shut down a street. A lot of it. They got some extras. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah that's it. Because um, a lot of the stuff like when um, uh, Mr. White and Mr. Orange are running away, it's sort of in that little car park. You know, it's just down like an alleyway and all that. And then, um, obviously, a lot of it's just in, like, the warehouse, the diner, uh, Joe's office. Um, when he's talking to – when Orange is talking to his handler, yeah, they're on that rooftop. You know, it was all very self-contained. But it never felt I, – I watched a film quite recently that had tried to be, like, this big horror movie, but they obviously didn't have enough money to do it. So the script constantly kept, like, stopping them from doing exciting things. Right. And and 
it was interesting. Like that that movie was probably made for more money than Reservoir Dogs. But Reservoir Dogs looks like it was made for like a legit budget. Like it was made for actual money. Um, <laughs> it never feels like a like a cheapy. And it, it, it well, I guess the thing is, it doesn't feel like a debut. It doesn't feel like a, someone's first film because it's so confident and it's so well put together and it just looks really good. You know, because like there are a lot of filmmakers like uh, Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket is very is very cheap and looks quite cheap. Yes, because it was cheap. <laughs> you know, whereas this was cheap, but they he uses the limitations of what he's got very, very well. You know, just that claustrophobia of the warehouse, a lot of scenes that I mean, because obviously it's like it's considered one of the greatest heist movies ever made. You never see the heist. You don't see any of the heist. Nope. But enough of it is spoken about and you get enough of a sense of it that you could probably get someone to watch this film and then two weeks later say to them, oh, do you remember the heist scene? They'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know? Wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, hold on. Yeah. I think I think the only thing, the only like pseudo negative thing I can say about production value is I remember the, the first time I watched this, and some of it has to do with the kind of out of order storytelling, the kind of flashbacks that are going on. Um, but the, the scene, which is, we'll talk about one of my favorite scenes is when, uh, we start to get the background of Mr. Orange. It's really disorienting. Like it takes you a yeah. couple minutes to figure out like, when is this? <clears throat> Who is that guy? Is this before? Is yeah. this, are we flashing forward? Did I miss something? Is he okay now to get out of a hospital? Like you really don't mm. know. But I think it's also one of those movies that, that I, mean, I think is the mark of any great movie is that when you watch it again, it all kind of comes together in a much better way and you totally yeah. understand what's going on. But it does take you a moment to kind of figure out why is this guy standing outside talking to this other guy, telling the story, what is happening here? But, but, a, and, a, yeah. and it just does. And a lot of these locations seem almost a little bit too nondescript, but I think that's just a, a matter of like they don't have money to like rent out places that feel like they're connected to where we are or to film extra sequences that kind of lead up to this and i th but i think it still yeah. ends up working yeah no it's yeah it's it's great and yeah that that mr orange thing is very weird in the sense that it's like a flashback and then a flashback within a flashback yes yes exactly because you have the scene where he's ends up like he practices the story and then you end up having the scenes where he actually tells the story so it's still yeah. a flashback, but it's a flash forward from where we just were. <laughs> I, I, I guess that would be, I, I do have that slight criticism in the sense that the story that he tells, I don't, I, it, it's a good story, but it doesn't have a good ending. Like, I, I feel as mm. though if it's supposed to be this story that like really gets them on his side, it needs like a big crescendo right. and them all to And be the like end is like, and then I walked out. That's the end of the yeah. story. <laughs> I mean, I guess that that is sort of the thing. It's supposed to be like, okay, well, when you actually do, when weird shit does happen to you, sometimes it is just the setting is the weird bit, right? But like, I I, I wanted something where something happened at the end, and then they're all laughing their asses off, and it's like, oh, look at this, look at this gang, like that's that's them drawing him in. But it, I mean, it's like I say, it's a minor criticism, right? But that that whole sequence where he's telling the story is is like probably the most that uh, Tarantino sort of opens the box a little bit because he's mm. like, obviously you've got Mr. Orange telling the story in the bar and then the next minute he's telling the story to the cops yep. in the toilet and the camera's just spinning around. Like that's, that feels like a the, the biggest sort of um, uh, directorial flourish that Tarantino puts in. It's the first time he kind of goes, fuck it, let's, let's, let's do this a little bit wild because there's nothing else really like that in the film. 
but that is sort of like it's almost like a dream sequence or something like it's it's very interesting like and i love just that whole thing of just the cops just staring at him and he's just like telling the story and yeah no i don't know very interesting i think that's the one time he sort of does something a bit wild but it works yeah yeah absolutely all right so let's talk about our favorite scene so what's one of your favorite scenes from reservoir dogs um my favorite scene from reservoir dogs i i i really like the um uh when uh that was the opening i think the opening is just mm-hmm. is you can't you can't get past it like it even now like i said even now having seen other filmmakers try and do this kind of thing and having seen you know eight or whatever tarantino movies and seen this seen like learned the language that he uses and stuff like that it was it was still so incredible just to think to yourself think to myself last night like the balls on this guy right. to open his movie <laughs> with this like I just everyone's just on fire, just like everyone. And it, it's great because it has that thing of like it feels real and it feels unreal. Like it's 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 sort of like it's very much a movie conversation. But the the banter in between where they're all sort of laughing at each other and taking the piss a bit. And then I love the whole thing with Mr. White where he's like, Toby, Toby, Toby <laughs> Chu, Toby Chong, Charlie Chan. You know, he just does that whole thing. And he's just like. I just, I just love it, and it just establishes. It doesn't fully paint everyone's character, but it gives you enough to sort of like start to see who stands where. And also, as well, actually, when you were saying before about something you noticed, um, when uh, when Joe says uh, who didn't tip, it's Mister Orange who rats out uh, yep. Mister Pink. Yep. Yeah, and I, that, I just noticed that. I was like, ah, oh, you little snitch. Right. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> and he is, yeah. I think my favorite scene, like, we can't go through this episode without talking about the ear sequence. Like, I think it's it's easily the most memorable sequence in the film. And there are so few moments in film history that are so tied. Like, yeah. I, I think I, I tweeted this out as I was rewatching this movie. Like, I will never hear that song and not yeah. think of. I will never hear stuck in the middle with you and not think of this sequence. That's how memorable it is. Those two things are just yeah. now intrinsically tied together. And you see this like sinister joy uh, on Michael Madsen's face as he's doing this and the lead up to it, yeah. you know, the whole like, Oh, torture you. Yeah. That's a really good idea. I think I'm going to do that. Like, I don't, I don't care what you have to say. I'm not trying to get information. I just really yeah. hate cops and I really love violence. So these things all <laughs> yeah. kind of work for me and it is it is disturbing it is funny it's mm. weird like there's so much going on in this sequence and there's almost no dialogue like if there's the lead up dialogue and then it's him dancing along to this song and yep. taking the knife out and just doing what he has to do until he ends up being killed by Mr. Orange but I absolutely love that sequence and you we talked about the guts it takes to just have that 7 minute opening conversation but also it takes guts to just like okay Michael, you're just going to dance around. You're going to cut this guy's yeah. ear off, and we're just going to keep the camera on you. There's no tricks here. We're not going to shy away from it. You know, we have those moments of dark humor where he, like, you know, talks into the ear. Like, can you yeah. hear this? Like, it's just, it's super disturbing, but you can't help but laugh. And I think it's just that scene itself is just perfect. Yeah, no. And, and again, like that, the, there's that interesting thing of like in the intro where he says, like, you know, I think Nice Guy Eddie says, hey, you know, if you guys were listening to K Billy's, Mm-hmm. super sounds of the 70s and there's a little bit of banter about that and then that is such a good runner throughout the film of like these dudes have just got hooked on this radio station so 
it gives you the soundtrack for the whole movie. And then it sort of comes full circle where Mr. Blonde says to the cop, have you been listening to K-Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s? Right. And turns on the song. And it's like, it, it's such a different thing of like having it in the intro where it's like this wonderful thing where everyone's like, oh my God, yeah, I hadn't heard this song in ages and this and this and this. Mm -hmm. And then Blonde just completely corrupts it. Yeah. Into something, into like the soundtrack to torturing someone. Yeah. And again, that's that's just, that's genius. Like that's just such a good such a good use of something you wouldn't think of. Right. Like, you know, it's not relevant to the plot in any way, this 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 uh, radio station, but it informs so much of the film. Yeah. Because Tarantino's movies are so tied in, well, maybe not anymore, but, like, his early sort of movies, like his early, like, crime picks, are so tied in with, like, musical choices. Like, even, yeah. like, Pulp Fiction, like, so much of that, like, the iconic scene in Pulp Fiction is a person dancing to music or two people mm -hmm. dancing to music. Yep. And the iconic scene from Reservoir Dogs, again, is someone dancing to music yeah. that is diegetic in the scene, right. um, but obviously very different scenes. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's talk about the theme. So it's time to talk about masking. So how do you, uh, like as you know, someone outside of the world of psychology, I kind of gave you a little bit of information, but how do you mm. feel like this theme tied in to Reservoir Dogs? Well, I sort of like when I when I read the thing you sent me, it sort of instantly I just thought of Mr. Orange and sort of him obviously wearing um, the the mask of an undercover cop and having to like ingratiate himself in that world and and hide who he is. But I guess the interesting thing really is as the, this is an undercover undercover cop movie, but we don't really know who Mr. Orange is pre that. You know, we don't know what it is he's hiding. We don't know right. what it is he's changing. Like when we do see him as Freddy for like a like the the commode scene and stuff like that. When he's talking to the handler, I, I just feel it's like you know it's it's Tim Roth doing a really good Quentin Tarantino impression, mm -hmm. and and that's all we really get of him. So we just know he's wearing a mask. We're just not one hundred percent sure what the mask is. Um, the one thing that sort of jumped out to me was. Obviously, throughout the film, we're constantly given Mr. Blonde as the psychopath um, of like, you know, he does all this fucked up stuff. But then later on, there was a, there's a scene where Mr. White is talking to Mr. Orange in the car and Mr. White's saying like, oh, if someone gets uppity with you, just smash the nose with um, uh, right? the butt of your gun. <laughs> and then he just he just describes this incredibly intense, like violent thing, completely stone faced. And then at the end, he's like, I'm hungry. Let's go get a taco. Let's get a taco. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like. I think you might be a psychopath. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think, in a weird way, I think Mr. Blonde is the most honest of any of these characters. Like, he never... Yeah, that's it. He never denies anything he's done. He's just like, I don't like alarms, so I started shooting people. If they hadn't touched yeah, the alarm, yeah. they'd still be alive. Not my fucking problem. And I think the yeah. person who does the most masking of this movie, I think, is Harvey Keitel's character of Mr. Yeah. White. I think, I think we really find out who he is when Mr. Orange is injured. Like, I think that yeah. is his true self. Like this person who actually cares about people. I think he's someone who happens to have fallen into this world of crime and has found out that he's really good at it. But I think when you boil him down, he is like this really kind, really empathetic yeah. character. And I think, I think he tries to, he puts up this bravado and you can see it when, uh, when Mr. Pink shows up and then when Mr. Blonde shows up that this, this like tough guy act is just that, that he's not. Yeah. 
a violent person by nature. He's and you talk about that scene where they're, you know, just sitting there kind of talking about what would happen. He is someone who uses violence towards an end, whereas Mr. Blonde is someone who just likes violence. And I think there's a very yeah. drastic difference between those two characters. So I feel like he's the one who is masking the most of who he is, even more than our undercover cop. Yeah, no, that very much so. Um and yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a fantastic thing, uh, a fantastic thing of your podcast. I think I, I said this to you before when we talked about it on Deadwood. Um, yeah, I would never have really made that thing, like putting that in my head. Like I was watching the film, like looking for these sort of things. And that's what I was sort of making my notes about. And I, I when you sent me that thing, I was like, oh, this is going to be a piece of piss. Just <laughs> Mr. Orange, top to bottom. This is going to be right. dead easy. <laughs> and then, yeah, that when I when that Mr. White scene and he's like describing the violence, I was like, oh, OK, shit. Yeah, that that is okay cool and then that started to unravel backwards for me then like inside to think about the film right. and yeah no it's it is fascinating like you are i mean well i guess i guess that would be a question who's the who do you think is the lead character in this film um that's an interesting question i feel like for me i think the lead character is mr white i think this yeah. is this is his story i think the first time i watched it i might have said this is tim ross story because uh, yeah. we do get a fair amount of background on him as well. Um, but I think it's more – he is more of like we mentioned. Like he has become this this set piece for the film. Yeah. And it's all about Harvey Keitel's reactions to what has happened to Mr. Orange. Yeah, and I, I think as well Mr. White probably gets the most screen time. I think he's mm-hmm. the one who interacts most with – because like when the heist has gone down, I don't you – know, you don't really – Mr. Orange doesn't really react to Mr. Pink – Mr. Orange kills Mr. Blonde, you know, the, the, but he, he, he has conversations with White and White talks to Pink one on one and he talks to Blonde one on one. And you, you know, he's the one who's known Joe for ages and all that. Yeah. And I think it is a bit of a like a, an interesting bait and switch because a movie like this where you've got an undercover cop, you know, like that, obviously, like I was just saying there, like with the masking, like my first thought was like, OK, well, this is. Mr. Orange's movie, so he, it's going to be his main thing because he's the undercover cop. But like you say, for, for a lot of times, he's just a bag of shit on the floor. He doesn't do right. anything, you know what I mean? He's just lying there, cake, caked in blood. Yep. Um, but yeah, they definitely, I think you're right, like with Mr. White, he's the one who's most, he's very assured, and he and Harvey Keitel um, exudes confidence, but he's not who he says he is, right. or he's not who he thinks he is. right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important point, too, is sometimes it's this masking that we do and we all do it. And sometimes it's not purposeful. Like, I think we we can tend to like we believe this, the stories that we put out there in the world. Um, so mm. we continue to interact in that way when really deep down inside we are different than the way we we put ourselves out for kind of public consumption. And I think this movie yeah. is a really good example of that. So that worked out. Yeah, no, very much so. All right, so uh, that's it for Reservoir Dogs. The last thing we have to talk about, this will be a little different because usually I ask people, like, are you excited about the new movie? Um, so without giving away any spoilers, should should we be excited about Free Fire? Because you've already seen it, right? I have, yeah. I'll give you give you a little bit of background because I want to talk about Ben Wheatley a bit. Uh, ben, Wheatley, ben Wheatley, obviously, English director. He is um, – he's probably my favorite director working at the moment. I – had just like um i think i can't remember which film it was of his that i saw and i absolutely adored it um i think i think i saw field in england one of his incredibly weird psychedelic movies that's all in black and white 
And I ended up being like, oh, I, I love this and just went through his catalog. Like Sightseers is genius. Kill List is genius. Down Terrace. Down Terrace is his debut. And that is a movie that was made on the cheap. Looks cheap as shit, but is incredible. Like it's all in. It's like it's very intense gangster movie inside a terrace house in England. And it's genius. Um, and then, yeah, like Free Fire came here to Australia last year uh, at Monster Fest, like a, a movie festival for... Uh, horror movies and like exploitation movies and stuff like that so I got press passes for that and went to go see it and I was really really hyped to see it and I absolutely loved it my one advice see it on the big screen with a really really good sound system because the way they've done the sound the sound editing and the sound mix every gunshot is like a cannon and it is incredible it's such a good film and like it doesn't have, I guess, probably doesn't have the same sort of nuance and stuff as um, Reservoir Dogs, but it's intensely funny and just incredible. Incredible film. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, this is a movie I am looking forward to. I really like the cast. And like the first thing mm. I thought of, as I mentioned, was Tarantino, especially early Tarantino, because this yeah. feels like a kind of locked room uh, film where it all takes place yeah. in this one place. It's ultra violent. It's ultra dark. It's ultra funny. So I am, I'm pretty hyped to see this. So, uh, there are some people out there, including my, uh, my co-host Mike, who has mocked me for this because he thinks it looks stupid, but I don't care. I am absolutely looking forward to it. So I can't wait oh, to see that this week. Yeah. It's great. It's really, really good. Um, and yeah, the cast is absurdly good. Nice. All right. So uh, before we finish out here, why don't you tell people one more time how to reach you and maybe your Twitter handle? Yeah. So um, for my podcast, if you uh, I'm always looking for guests and there's always more shows to do. So, yeah, um, I'm on Twitter for that. Um, first to last pod or people can email me directly at from first to last podcast at gmail dot com. Uh, my personal Twitter is uh, equiatic underscore bind, which is spelled e-q-u-a-i-t-i-c-e underscore b-i-n-d i think that sounds right that sounds right yeah it sounds about right yeah <laughs> yeah, and, yeah I'm, I'm on there i'm mostly talking about uh star wars at the moment so yeah come check that out look at me i will never pass for a perfect bride or a perfect dog. All right, thank you once again for listening to an episode of Pop Culture Case Study. If you want to get more involved with the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. The first and easiest way is to listen to the show and share it with your friends or follow me on Twitter at PC Case Study, where you can find other great movie podcasts like The Best and Worst of the Best and the True Romance Film Podcast on followingfilms.com. If you really want to help me out, though, you can actually donate to the show on a per-episode basis. And to do that, you go to a site called Patreon, and it's just patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy, and it's a really great way to support an independent podcast. Now, the next time you hear me, if all goes well, we will be doing a new release review on Free Fire, as mentioned in this episode. And to do that, uh, as we mentioned last week, Mike is gone from the show for new releases. So we're bringing in a guest co-host, uh, Dan, from the Get Real Movies podcast. So look forward to that. So until then, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. And it's great. I hadn't watched Reservoir Dogs in forever. So that was really <laughs> nice to sort of sit and watch it. And I am... Um... 
yeah, I just like rented it off iTunes last night and sort of had a. It was one of those as well where um, we've been at my my in-laws' place for the weekend for um, Easter. Mm-hmm. So me and like my wife, we, we both caught colds off because there's all kids everywhere. Oh no! Um, so both feeling really run down, and then so my wife was in the living room like uh, watching the last episode of Girls. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll take the computer in the back and I'll watch Reservoir Dogs. So I was like, but I might just watch like 45 minutes of it now and then break it off and have another half an hour and all that. And yeah, just obviously watched it all the way through. <laughs> oh yeah, this is, this is fucking genius. This has brought me back to life. 